Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. They couldn't be separated on Sunday and they meet again at Wembley on Saturday. Before then, Liverpool and Manchester City have the little matter of the return legs of their Champions League quarterfinals. They're the two best club teams in the world at the moment. City have a slight edge in the Premier League but face a test of nerve resilience and fortitude against Atletico Madrid on Wednesday. So Jordan, as far as Europe is concerned, is it advantage Liverpool? It definitely is. It definitely is. I was fortunate enough to have been at the first leg in Lisbon between Benfica and Liverpool last week. And a little bit like with the Man City game yesterday, and I'm going to try and limit my cliches on this program to, to, to no more than three. But the thing that I'd be most concerned about if I was the rest of Europe and indeed Manchester City is that Liverpool aren't playing particularly great, in my opinion, but they're getting the job done. They weren't amazing against Benfica in the first half. They took them a while to get going. They scored the first goal in the first half. But the second half of that game against Benfica, for about half an hour, Benfica were all over them and Liverpool just ground it out and then obviously got the goal that I think we'll, we'll end up seeing them through. And a little bit like in the game against Manchester City, I didn't think Liverpool were particularly great in large spells. I thought they, they were defensively quite nervous. But although I think it's a slightly better point for City than for Liverpool, I think it's still a good point for Liverpool. Just stay within a point of Manchester City and hope that they can drop points, they being Manchester City down the line. So I think this week with Europe, I think it is advantage Liverpool. They can afford to maybe rest a couple of players. I, I would potentially bring Salah onto the bench. Uh, I'd give maybe a game or two off, you know, bring him on if you have to, but I think he could do with, you know, with, with a little time off at the moment. I know they're going into a crucial part of the season, but he he is not, he's not playing poorly, but he's not as sharp as I think we know he can be. So I think the two goal lead they have does give them that little bit of a cushion in their second leg tie, which I'm going to as well at Anfield. I think for Manchester City, I'm concerned. 
I'm concerned that they're the, they're the favourites in this tie, the second leg for sure. But I, I've I've got a feeling this is going to be a really horrible game, the second leg for them. And I think even if they do go through, and I think they will, I think a lot will be taken out of them in preparation for their for their for their next couple of games, uh, league and cup. So I think it is advantage Liverpool. But I think in terms of the Premier League, I still just just by toenail give give Manchester City the advantage. Yeah, I I think well to quote Jurgen Klopp, Rich, we need to be as close to perfection as possible for the rest of the season. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Hundred percent, because and you know as Jordan alluded to, you know even if you know if Liverpool win the remaining fixtures, you know they're still going to be one point behind unless Manchester City slip up. And I think Jordan raised a good point in the sense that Liverpool aren't at their fluent best by any means. But they get they're getting the job done, and even yesterday, the fact that they managed to stay within the game, I, I you know, it's hats off to them. I mean, obviously, of course, it's advantage Man City, but I think the intensity at which Manchester City played yesterday was was incredible, and and you know, Liverpool did did look nervous, and and they were caught a few times. So the fact that they were able to to salvage a draw and, and not lose that game, I think it, it does give them a real belief and impetus. But of course, the advantage is with. Manchester City, they've got a, a kind of run-in on paper and you'd expect both sides to win their remaining fixtures. So, of course, if that remains the case, then City will go in and, and win the title. But I was, what, what I like about both of them is that their standards are so high and they'll keep pushing each other all the way to that finish line. And it will be a very, a very fascinating end of the season. But as I say, if, if both sides win all their games, then it will end up in City's hands. So, mm. Do you think, Jordan, that the intensity of the rivalry is such that almost next so everything is sort of interconnected so that next saturday's fa cup semi-final between them might almost be swayed by the nature of their return legs in in europe because as we say that game in madrid could be horrible yes i i think that the next couple of games after this european round of second legs for manchester city i think that they're going to go into those games a little bit leggy and a bit jaded more so than liverpool so I, I think both Liverpool and City both go through, but I think the impact of going through, I think will be harder on City just because of the team they're playing. And I, I think on paper, I mean, I, I always find it interesting when people talk about harder run-ins and difficult fixtures, because I don't know what a hard fixture is, you know? Uh, who's a better team out of Wolves and Burnley? Well, it's Wolves, but right now, I'd rather play Wolves than Burnley because Burnley got something to play for. So I never understand when people say this is a hard fixture. I, I, I'm like, it doesn't really mean much to me. I think what's going to be crucial for more so Manchester City is how they recover. I think Manchester City is about recovery and how they can really get out of this 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 grueling game against against Atletico Madrid. I do think though that the, 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 the when people talk about the rivalry intensity, I don't really see an intense rivalry between the two teams on the pitch per se. So there's been a lot of talk in the last week about this being the greatest rivalry of the Premier League era. I don't think when I when I think of these two teams, I think of the two arguably technically best teams in the Premier League era, potentially. But when I think of intense rivalries, I think of Man United, I think of Arsenal from, from the late 90s and the early noughties. I don't see a, a rivalry in, in terms of intensity in that sense. I see two teams with the two best managers in the world, two teams with probably the two best squads in the world, but I don't see a necessarily intense rivalry on the pitch between the two. But I think there's a rivalry in terms of the closeness and the, and the levels that, that, that they're both pushing each other to reach for sure. Yeah. To get through midweek, Rich, who will need to play 
out of their skin. You know, you looked yesterday, I thought Rodri was outstanding. Phil Foden and Bernardo Silva in midfield were, were pressing the life out of Liverpool or certainly harassing them. Who do you think will have to have an absolutely stellar game in Madrid for them to get through? I think with what we've seen from City over the years is that while they've got abundance of talent, the fact that they all come together and they all know their roles and they all they, they all have such a high standard that it's difficult to, to pick one person in the sense that, okay, I think the, the strategy in Madrid will be slightly different because they are ahead, they have something to protect. And it won't be, I, I can't see it personally being as high intensity as the game on Sunday. I think it'll be more a case of death by a thousand or 10,000 passes, as, as has been said before. You know, and could, at the end of the day, Atletico have to come out and press them and, 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 and you know, try and, and chase the game. So if City keep the ball, which they can do, you know, they, they can recover in, in, that, in that respect and then pick them off, you know, and get them behind them as Atletico try to push. So I thought if they all stick to that game plan, then of course their, their match winners, the likes of, of Kevin De Bruyne, the likes of, as you say, you mentioned Phil Foden, will be key. And as long as the, the backline remains resolute, which they've proven that they can be, you know, John Stone just come into really good form. Laporte look, looks really solid as well. Then I expect City to, to see the game through. But it will definitely be a, a collective effort, as, as we've seen. And well, one, one thing which really int- intrigues me about City is the fact that all the players, as I mentioned, they all know their roles. And looking at the, 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 uh, the touch map yesterday, normally when you see touch maps after the game, you see some certain players are pushed out of position or looks a bit lopsided. But everyone's position was just as how it started. So you had to, there was a flat back four with the Bernardo and, and Rodri next to each other in midfield and, and, and the, the rest of the forwards in their positions. And I thought that is a team that is so well coached, so well drilled, even in such a game as against Liverpool where things can, can look haphazard. And although the intensity was so high, everybody knew their roles, everybody knew their positions and, and their positional play, which is obviously key in the prep. So is that kind of collective strategy which I think we'll, we'll, we'll see again in, in, in midweek as well Yeah it, it was really interesting Jordan listening to Jurgen Klopp afterwards where he talked about Guardiola making him a better manager you know and he said look you know I, I, I try to imitate him I suppose that gets to the nub of this isn't it it's it's a it, there are two teams which bring probably the best out of one another but also two managers yeah, I agree. I, I don't agree with the last part of his quote there. I don't think he tries to imitate him at all. I think he just, I, I think, I think he's just being nice there because you, you can clearly see by the way that his teams play football, he's not trying to imitate Pep at all. So I don't, I think he kind of got a bit of this love in between the two of them that happens. I think went a little bit too far there, almost into lies. But they, they definitely are pushing each other. I think you've got the two best managers in world football. What I love about Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp is that, is that they are very different. I love that the two best teams in this country and, and and possibly Europe are very, very different. You have one team that is all about the beauty and the art of playing football. It's about possession. It's about intricate passes. It's about, as, as Rich says, you know, you know, we're going to we're going to wear you down by the by the accuracy and the intensity of our passing. And we're going to we're going to score the perfect goal. And then you have another team that's based on spirit and energy and fights and aggression. And we're going to beat you. We're going to, we're going to put it on you. We're going to put it on you and we're going to see if you can manage that. And I think having those two different styles, I think is such a beautiful thing. And I, 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 love, I love both styles. I like the intensity of Liverpool, but I love the, the balletics 
style and feel of how Man City play as well. So I think having these two managers push each other to a, a higher standard, I, I think is definitely something that, 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 you know, that we should all be appreciating. But just going back to your question to Rich earlier on about individual players, I know we shouldn't single out players because there's 22 phenomenal world-class players on, on show here. But I thought yesterday's game, Kevin De Bruyne for me stood out. But he stood out for me because he didn't stand out. And what I mean by that is about 18 months, two years ago, he had a period where I think he announced himself as the best player in the world, maybe bar Messi and Ronaldo, best midfield in the world for sure. But he was doing it with spectacular performances, amazing goals, amazing passes. He was, he was running the show in terms of what he was overtly doing. Yesterday, I saw a performance from Kevin De Bruyne that was phenomenal, but very subtle. So I think you wouldn't, he didn't maybe stand out for, you know, three or four amazing passes, you know, two or three insane crosses and, and goals, but just running the game. It was a very David Silva performance for me where the subtlety of his performance, I think would have been missed on a lot of people. He ran the game without being overtly phenomenal. I love Kevin De Bruyne. I think he's the best player in the world because he can be overtly phenomenal but as yesterday proved he can also be at times very subtly phenomenal as well yeah put yourself in a coach's position please rich your goalkeeper is sort of rolling the ball casually along his own goal <laughs> as if you know he's, he's out for a sunday stroll and he's looking for his dog which has disappeared over the horizon and you've got someone coming towards him you know in that position as his coach what are you doing you must be screaming I think most coaches would be, but Pep probably would have been quite calm about it. I mean, yes, I mean yeah. obviously, yes. Trotter's <laughs> running in on, in, in on him, I should say. But we, we know Edison is fantastic on the ball, and we know that Man City like to bring their teams onto them to pass it and pop it around them. And ultimately, <laughs> I mean, although it was scary, he, he, he did that job. He, he invited the press and uh, he was able to, to pass it around him. So, I mean, God, I mean, if you're a City fan watching that, of course, it's heart and mouth stuff. But, you know, <laughs> the, the confidence and the quality. I mean, we, we've all said this before, you know, Edison's quality on the ball. He, he could probably play outfield for, for, for a lesser club in terms of his distribution. And so he's got a great left foot, can pass it short, play it long. And although I think, as they say, fans were heart and mouth moment, I think the, the coaches of the City would have said, OK, you know, good. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I don't think Pep Guardiola would have been heart in mouth at all. I think he's probably the one person in the stadium that actually was the coolest. Because I think I think that moment in 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 that three or four seconds of of action for me epitomise what Pep Guardiola is all about and what he's all about with Manchester City. That is that that is the that is the moment of if you were to show someone what he's about is to show show them that clip. It's don't panic play football. If he'd have messed up and the goal would have gone in and Joss would have, would, have, would have scored the goal, of course he'd have been disappointed, Pep Guardiola. But I, I don't think he would have lost his head. I think he would have been, this is what I expect from all 11 of my players. Play the ball, trust in your ability. That was, I, I loved that moment. That was the moment of the match for me, not because it was exciting and exhilarating, but for me, it kind of really surmised what Pep Guardiola is all about. Trust your technique, trust your patience. I trust you. Let's get on with it. Do you know what I mean? And I, and I think Edison as well would have been, he looked, looked at his face afterwards. I mean, maybe in, inside his heart was beating, a, you know, a thousand miles per hour. I don't know. But I reckon it probably wasn't. I reckon, he, again, he feels that trust from Pep Guardiola to do that. I think he was the coolest guy in the, in, in the stadium and he trusted. Don't worry, I've got this. And Rich says that Edison could play in midfield for a lesser team. He could play in midfield for Man City. 
Let's have it right. He can play. He can play midfield. For, he could, can he? He could be a squad player in midfield for Manchester City. So I thought that moment really encapsulated what Pep Guardiola's teams are all about. It's trust. It's technique. It's it's patience and it's belief. And you know what? I trust that you can play football. Just play football. And that in that moment, he was saying to his goalkeeper, "Play football. Don't panic and boot it. Play football." Yeah. yeah, Jordan made a point earlier in passing, Rich, uh, about Mo Salah. One goal in ten, I believe, for club and country. You know, he's a proud man. He loves being on a football pitch. But however virulently he objects, do you think it is time to give him a breather? I think so. And to go into, into the reasons why, I, I, when he came back from Afghan, he, he played four extra time. Well, four of his matches went into extra time, or went into, and uh, you know a couple went into penalties. And since he's you know in total up to now, since he's been back, the total of six games for club and country, which have gone the four hundred and twenty minutes, Salah's played every single minute of that. So he's come back from Afghan, obviously disappointed about that, disappointed about not getting into the World Cup, and with those added exertions as well. But when he arrived back, I, I did suggest that maybe he should have had a a little bit of a rest because he came back straight away. I think he was back in training on the Tuesday and they lost on the Sunday, came off the bench on the Thursday. Fair enough, Salah's a supreme athlete, but you know, these games are going to take its toll. And I think he's just slightly fatigued and maybe he does need to just come out the firing line for a little bit. I mean, whereas before you could question the depth of Liverpool's front line, but I think with the likes of Diaz, who's come in and done so well, there is option for rotation. Of course, they've got Diego Jota, they've got Firmino, they've got Mane now. So there, there is options for, for rotation. And yeah, I think, of course, the, game, the games are coming thick and fast and, you know, Liverpool like to have their best players on the pitch. But I think in the games where, for example, Benfica, it, it, maybe Salah should start on the bench because you just spent Liverpool whatever side they put out to see out that game and then he can come in fresh for the for the semi-final the only thing mm. I'd say alternatively to that is that the K might not be playing well but he's coming up with moments of quality and that through ball he did for uh, Sadio Mane on, on Sunday was just an indication that okay he may not be in the game for the full 90 minutes as we know that he usually is but he can produce that one moment of quality that can be decisive and, and, and that was fantastic with that I, I, I think, sorry to brief on, on Salah as well, I wonder if the contract negotiations, whether the, how how we've used that in terms of having, the, the, the you know, a break because Egypt not being at the World Cup, I wonder if he will view staying at Liverpool now for the for the long term and the, not being at the World Cup as a, as a positive now because he'll get a rest, if you like, in inverted commas, over that kind of World Cup period, which I think he needs. I think he needs, you know, to, you know, three, four weeks off. And he might just feel, you know what, if I can get that three or four weeks off when the World Cup's happening, come back mid-season and really go to another level with Liverpool, that may be a reason why he wants to stay at Liverpool and sign the contract, potentially. Mm. Just looking forward, you know, Rich mentioned the semi-finals, the uh, Champions League semi-finals. Liverpool, it, it, is their semi-final now quite an inviting option, Jordan? Because when you think of it, Bayern, okay, they're trailing to, to Villarreal. They they only beat uh, Augsburg at the weekend with a late Lewandowski penalty. Um, you know, I know we routinely say, you know, they're the, they're the non-Premier League club who could win it. But are they as formidable as usual, do you think? 
No, they're not. But I wonder if that is because they have significantly dropped off in the last 18 months or if the bar has been risen by the likes of Liverpool, Manchester City and Chelsea. I actually think Liverpool are suited to playing Bayern Munich. I think Bayern Munich will go through, but I don't see Bayern Munich beating Liverpool, not only because they're not in their top, top form, but I think that the way Bayern Munich plays conducive to how Liverpool want them to play. So... I, I don't have any big concerns about Liverpool getting through that tie should Bayern Munich get through. So, you know, I, I think a top on form firing Bayern Munich, are, are, I love watching Bayern Munich play. They're, they're, they're one of the best teams in Europe. And I think the European competition is better for having them at their peak. But I'm, I'm, I can't quite work out if they have dropped off significantly or if Manchester City and Liverpool are making them look a little bit weaker because they've raised the bar. And even Chelsea, Chelsea winning the Champions League last season, that may just be... The the bar may have just been risen, so we we think that Bayern Munich aren't playing as well as they as as as, as they should be. When really, you know, the others are just are just playing better. A one 0 defeat to Villarreal in the first leg can happen. We know Unai Emery in Europe has a phenomenal record. You know that can happen. I think they'll overturn that. They'll have enough to come through that. But I think even if Bayern Munich were at top form, I still would think Liverpool would beat them. I just think Liverpool, the way they play, I think works works for Bayern Munich. Yeah. What about Chelsea, Rich? Uh, do you think they're on the way out, you know, despite that sort of sparking back into some form of form at Southampton? I think so. I think they've, they've given themselves themselves a, a lot to do there in, in the sense that, you know, maybe if it was if it was 2-1, but I think I think the, the third goal was, was the killer and it, it will prove to be decisive. And I think the difference between this year and last year when they beat them was Last year, their wide forwards had a lot of joy in the in the in the half spaces, in the sense that Real Madrid found it very difficult to to pick them up. But in the in the first leg, any time their wide men got the ball, I say in those half spaces, they were just swarmed by the fullbacks and also the the, the the trio in midfield, and really stifled them. And then obviously, of course, showed their quality on 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 the break with, with their goals. Of course, the third was a mistake, but I think the fact that as well, you know, at the Bernabeu. You know, sit, um, Real Madrid have have something to protect, and the fact that they'll they'll be at home this time as opposed to last season when it was roles reversed, I, I think is, is is advantage Real Madrid. And although Chelsea do, you know, they came into a bit of form over the weekend, it'll be difficult for them to uh, to really overturn that. Yeah, you know, looking at that result at Southampton, we almost had a sort of Emil Heskey esque type moment, and even Timo Werner scored. You know, if you look at Chelsea up front. On paper, you know, they should be doing better than they are. There's just something's not quite right. With Werner, he scored his two goals, but missed a load more chances. Obviously, Lukaku wasn't in the squad. With him, Jordan, do you think actually it's time to say, OK, let's get real here, people? Probably the return to Italy was probably going to be best for all parties here. You feel a bit sorry for Lukaku because you think that if there's one game that he could have done with playing in, it would have been that game on the weekend. He could have got a couple of goals himself. Yeah. I, I do think Chelsea will cut their losses and, and move him on. And I do think Italy is, is an option for him. Uh, you see, you know, he, he obviously loved it, loved it there. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if you see Lukaku rocking up at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium next season. I wonder if Lukaku is missing Inter and Italy... Or is he missing Conte? Because I, I I wouldn't be surprised if Kane moves on this summer, if if Conte if he gets top four especially, doesn't just do a, you know 
knock on the door to, to Mr. Levy say, hang on a minute, I've got you top four after your team are in absolute pieces. I need 60 mil and I want Lukaku in. I want Lukaku in because I know what I can do with him after after if potentially losing Harry Kane. So I do think Chelsea will cut the losses. It's not working out for, for, him, for him there. I think in a way that Morata didn't work out for Chelsea. He, you know, he bombed there. The difference here is that I didn't get the sense that Morata was almost hated by the fan base. It wasn't working out for him. And I think they recognised that he wasn't good enough. They didn't hate him. I get a feeling that the Chelsea fan base really dislike Lukaku. And I think that alongside Tuchel not being able to find a way to get Lukaku in his system, I, I think he'll 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 move on. Um, and I, yeah, I, I've got a sneaky feeling he, he if Harry Kane moves on, you could see Lukaku in in a white shirt next season. Mm. What are the tribal politics of that, Rich? Yeah, I mean, a, a player moving from Stamford Bridge to, to the Tottenham Stadium, I think <laughs> it's, it, it, it would it would raise it would raise some eyebrows. I think Jordan raises a good point. You know, the Conte factor is is there. I mean, obviously, it's, it's unlikely. Also, as well, the fact that the way Spurs are playing, you know, they they could potentially be a direct rival next season. And you know, would you see Chelsea? Something true, true. A, a rival. I mean, I've you know, in the past they've sold matter to Manchester United and, and things like that. But it, I mean, it would be, it would be interesting. But then also Tottenham could turn around and say, well, you know, the likes of Kudelski, Son playing so well at the moment. You know, where, where does Lukaku fit into that if Kane does does go? Because as we all know, Kane okay, Lukaku's a supreme forward. But I think his strengths are when he's running at defenders, especially off that right-hand side. I'm not as this target man, which Chelsea still seem hell-bent on playing him as. So it'll be a really interesting dynamic if should he go there. I think it's a really good, really good talking point. I mean, I think it's unlikely, but I mean, can you imagine? I think that that would be the start of a really interesting rivalry because, of course, you've got Exos running to there, you've got Spurs who are on the up, and Lukaku, who's from the Stanford Bridge, who could potentially do well at, at, at Spurs. So... Yeah, I think it's unlikely, but I think it'll be really interesting <laughs> to see it happen. And and just on that point there, Richard, I think I'm I'm so disappointed in how the Lukaku return to Chelsea has gone. I was, if you like, duped into thinking that actually a new Lukaku was coming back to the Premier League. I really was impressed with what he did at Inter. I think we're seeing now that I th I personally think that it was Conte rather than you know, the league itself he was in. I think Conte really got the best out of him. We're seeing now Conte take Kane to another level as well. But I'm really disappointed in how Lukaku, how it's worked out. I don't solely blame Lukaku for how badly it's gone. There's been injuries, had COVID. I think too cool. There's some responsibility there. Did he want Lukaku or was he given Lukaku? Um, but I, I really wanted to believe that Lukaku had finally arrived in that top tier of strikers in Europe and used the word supreme um, there, Richard. I, I think that's a question mark now. Is he a supreme striker or is he a very good striker? Um, I think this season is possibly showing that he's not in that Lewandowski, Benzema, Kane, Haaland bracket, maybe a tier below. And I wanted him to be in that bracket. And I told him, all oh, my friends, he's back. Don't worry. <laughs> it was your fault, Man United. You messed him up. You were the problem. But actually, I think Lukaku's got a little bit of responsibility himself in, in, in what's happening at Chelsea. Yeah, I th I think, to be fair, Jordan, I think, I think, think you're right. I think... You know, pre previous podcast, you know, I've said, I think, Mike, you've asked, oh, you know, will Lukaku come good? And I said, yeah, of course, you know, 97 million's a good striker. He'll be decisive. And I think what stood out to me or what was a, a pivotal moment was against Real Madrid, that that miss. Because when you're looking for your, your big strikers to come up with big moments, 
and if, you know if it scored that header makes it three two and it brings the tie it, it makes the tie alive especially going into the second leg you saw Benzema at the other end score two fantastic headers and then you have Lukaku at the other end quite a simple header he had a bit of work to do doesn't hit the target and I think it's in those moments where you're looking for your your number nines to to be decisive and looks as though I've, I've been proved wrong because in those key moments and that was a key moment for him okay fair he may be rusty due to lack of game time but you need your you need your number nines to score those and he came up short there yeah, you mentioned Conte there, Jordan. I'm going to go a bit all game show host on you here, but you know, go for it. Manchester United, just look what you could have won. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I don't think they'd, they'd admit it publicly, but I think they are probably kicking themselves there. I mean, the Gary Neville line is that they were never going to appoint him. He's not a Man United type manager. They had their fingers burned with that type of manager with Jose Mourinho. Okay, maybe there's some truth in that, but I, I think United need to need need to reevaluate what they what they want to be as a club. Are they a club that first and foremost are about winning and competing, or or are they a club that's about a lot more? And I, I don't think either one is, is is necessarily bad. If you're a club that kind of prides yourself on first and foremost, we have to be winning trophies. Well, then you go and get Conte, and I don't think you can be sniffy about styles and bringing through players you've got to just get the guy that can help you win but if you want a club builder which it seems Ten Hag who's the who's the guy that we think will get the job is then Conte wasn't the guy then and you want someone that can maybe be there for the long term and, and, and I get that logic as well I think Ten Hag being the favourite I mean I find it interesting that Ten Hag is going to be going there I mean there's an interesting article written by Oliver Holt in the, in the, in the, in the mail this weekend about him saying if he was Ten Hag he'd run a mile he wouldn't go anywhere near that job and I, and I kind of see what he's saying I don't drive a car I'm not, I've never been a driver but the analogy that I think and the concern for United I think there is is that if I've got a Skoda and this guy is kind of just beeping along, doing a steady job, a, a, you know, going from A to B, doing this job. And then Richard's got a, a an Audi, an Audi, I don't know what they're called, A44. Let's make up a name here. <laughs> and, it, and it runs really smoothly and it's really fast and, it, you know, it doesn't judder and it's great. I have the money to go and say, OK, I'm going to buy the engine in Richard's Audi car and I'm going to take your engine and put it in my Skoda. It doesn't work like that. That's not how cars work. The reason why... Richard's Audi works so well is because the engine in it is part of a wider system of components that come together to make that car drive amazingly well. And I think there's a similar thing happening here. United think they just pluck Ten Hag out of Ajax and put him into their team. He's a brilliant coach. I don't think it works. It doesn't Ten Hag works out well because he's part of a system. Like Donny van der Beek. Donny van der Beek is a phenomenal midfield player, but he's a phenomenal player because he was part of a system that got the best out of him. You can't just pluck a, a component out of a successful machine, if you like, and think it will work. So I think if they do appoint him, brilliant appointment, but I don't think, I think they're missing the point as to why he's as good as, as, as indeed he is. Sorry, awful analogy there, but I think you know where I'm going with that. Uh, yeah, well, other comfortably priced family <laughs> saloons are available. <laughs> yeah, with, with Ting Hag, Rich, you know, there's some, you know, there's some talk which doesn't seem to add up that he might even go to RB Leipzig instead. When, when you see mm. the, the job that uh, Domenico Tedesco is doing there, it doesn't make any sense. You're even at a stage where Ruud van Nistelrooy, who is going to take over as PSV manager from Roger Schmidt next season, is being linked as a potential number two. 
a long way of sort of getting all this back on track about Europe is that PSV are playing their return leg in the conference against Leicester on Thursday. If you're Van Nistelrooy, do you touch Man United with a barge pole? You don't. You you, you you run a mile. And then that's that's not to be disrespectful to Van Nistelrooy or Manchester United. It's just in the sense that one, you know, if you look at Van Nistelrooy's kind of history as you know in, in the hearts you know he was assistant manager at Holland and he's been coaching under 19 sides and done very well but you know as I say PSV is part of that succession that succession structures in the sense that when Mark von Bommel was under 19 manager he then became PSV manager and I was seeing the same with with Rude van Nistelrooy who took over from Van Bommel in, in, in 2019. So he, he seems to be comfortable in that environment and, and good luck to him. But I think to then go from coaching PSV is under 19, so then going to the Manchester United hot seat as number two, I think it would be too much for him. Now, I, of course, we've, we've heard and we're led to believe that United want a, a next player as a, as, a, as a number two, which I think in terms of trying to keep the club's ideals and values, I, I see it. However, if, you know, you want the manager to put his own stamp on things and we've seen that certain ideals and values haven't been working. So why just not rip it up and, and start again? And with your Ten Hag, surely you would want your own backroom staff, people who you trust, people within your circle who you know can get the best out of players on the training field, but also the best out of you as a manager. If Ten Hag was to come in with Rivanistro, it's a completely new dif- uh, new dynamic. You know, they've, they've come from rival clubs. One's come from Ajax, one's come from PSV, who are both challenging for the title. You know, that's, that's an uh, interesting dynamic in itself. So... Just going back to Ten Hag as well, Mike, I think if I'm Manchester City, I'm telling Ten Hag, turn it down, give us a couple of years, we'll come for you. One, because it'll be hilarious and the <laughs> ultimate S-housery, it'll just be hilarious. But second of all, it kind of makes sense. It kind of, I, I can see Ten Hag at a team like Manchester City. I think they would allow him to bring his entire backroom team with him. Because I think when Pep moves on, I think his his coaching team will move on as well. So I, I think Man City will allow Ten Hag to bring his his his, his team there. And I think they, they would give Ten Hag, like they've given Pep, pretty much full reign to mould the next phase of Manchester City in the in the post-Pep era. So if I'm City, I'm getting involved and I'm saying, hang on a minute, Ten Hag, you just just hold tight for a couple more seasons and we, no, no guarantees, no promises, but we're looking at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, don't, don't go there. Just hold tight for now. Leicester, Rich, you know, that was a goalless first leg against PSV. One of the more unsung heroes of the of the season sorry for the cliche alert i'm um one one now aren't we jordan on those yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go on, um go on, go on. Left. <laughs> kieran kieran Dewsby hall he's been exceptional didn't get in the team till early december that's probably one of the great bonuses of their season isn't it it really is you know as you mentioned since since he's come in in december he's only missed three games which shows you know, his impact, you know, he's, he's earned the trust of, of Brendan of Brendan Rodgers. You know, he was really good on loan at, at Luton last season in the sense, you know, he, he won all four awards there, you know, including players player. And it's someone who's a, a bit of a late bloomer. You know, he's 23, so he's not not a young player, but he's by this time. And, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's really effective now. My colleague, Rob Tanner, wrote a piece in Athletic on him. It should be out this morning. And it kind of looks at charting, charting his rise in the sense that, you know, Drewsby Hall, as a teenager, was, was quite small. And as mentioned, it's kind of late developer. And he was, you know, often teased for his, for his stature, quite small, quite scrawny. But he's really shot up. He's, he's bulked up. He, and he's, you know, he's a presence now, as you can see in the midfield. And 
he's, he's, he's impacting games. He's not just he's not just there, you know, playing square passes. He's you know he's he's he's, he's making decisive passes. He's making breaking runs into the box. You know, golden assist yesterday. Both real quality. And you know his lovely left foot, which brings great balance to, to Leicester's midfield. So it's been really good to to see his his development. And um, you know he's he's had a really good season since he's come in in, in December. West Ham playing on the same night, Jordan. Has their season? Do you think after that defeat against Brentford on Sunday, has their season condensed into that return leg of the Europa League quarter final in Lyon? Yes. Yes, I think I think from here to the end of the season now, it's all about trying to win the Europa League. I think that is the smart thing to do. I mean, I, I say that, I, I think whilst top four for them is definitely gone, they don't want to take their foot off the Premier League gas too much because there's no guarantee they'll win the Europa League. And West Ham have now got themselves in a position whereby... I think they'd expect European football every season now. And if they don't qualify for next year's competition uh, or any competition via winning the Europa League this season, they will want to still finish in the top seven. So I, I think, yeah, they, they I, I would protect my best 11, best 13, if you like, or so um, for the Europa League games. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't chuck the league away now. I wouldn't go all in because, you know, I think they'll go deep into that, but there's no guarantee they'll win that. I think they still want to make sure they can, they can maintain a top seven position, which is not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. I think Spurs and Arsenal are battling out for fourth. It's looking like Spurs are going to, are going to get fourth. Let's say Arsenal get fifth. Then you've got sixth and seventh being fought between the likes of West Ham, Manchester United, even Wolves as well. So I don't think they can take their foot completely off the gas, but I think their season is now condensed into ensuring that they are they are prime and ready to give their best in, in the Europa League as opposed to uh, the Premier League games. Mm, they were unfortunate in the first leg, weren't they, Rich? Do you think they're capable of winning in France? Yeah, I think, I think in the first leg they showed great resilience. They're going down to 10 men. Uh, obviously went ahead as well. Uh, so the fact that they they still go to France, you know, level, they, they can cause problems. We, we, we've seen that. I mean, of course, you know, Antonio, Mick Antonio is not in great form. You know, he's not scored in 12. But we know what he brings to, to the West Ham side. And we know the likes of Bowen, likes of Fournals, likes of Bryce, all, all key players who, who, who can, you can cause Leon problems. I mean, you know, we've only lost once on the road in Europe this season. Okay, that was a way to, to Sevilla. But they do have the quality to, to cause them problems. And as I say, I think the fact that they were so resilient in that first leg is, is a real, real basis to, to, to build upon. And it's, it's really been a story of their season, really, you know, riding out tough moments. And if they can go to that, to, to, to that, of course, it'll be a cauldron there. But if they can, if they can, if they can start well and, and stay within the game, then by all means, they, they, they can cause them problems and, and go through. Just want to end it, if I could, gents, but looking at, at the relegation area, Keeping on the on the on the theme of West Ham, Jordan, are Brentford now safe after that win on Sunday? Yes, yes they are, yes they are, and I think Brentford did what I advise any team that's new to the Premier League to try and do, which I'm sure they do anyway, but try and bank as many points early on as possible. If you're a team coming up from the from the from the Championship. You, you are going to have a period in the season whereby you go two or three months and you might not win a game. 
you're going to have a horrible part of the season, which Brentford did have. But Brentford's saving grace, I think, isn't how they're finishing the season. I think it's the fact they banked that 20 points quite early. If you can get yourself 20 points between August and Christmas, you give yourself a chance. The problem with the teams that go down is they don't get off to a good start and then you're playing catch-up. And by the time you're trying to play catch-up, you're too far behind. So when that when that bad run comes, which inevitably it will, you're so far behind, you just, you just can't get involved. And Brentford got themselves ahead, knowing they had credit in the bank. So when they got reeled back in, they were still... One of the one of the teams that you you fancied the least to go down out of that clutch of at the time Newcastle, Norwich, Burnley's, and, and so on. So I think they are safe now. I think for them now it's about forward planning for next season. Okay, I I think another three points and they're definitely safe. But I, and I think they'll get three points between now and end of the season. It's about now. Okay, what do we need to do in the summer to ensure that we don't do a Sheffield United? And we don't now suffer in the second season. How do we make sure now we stay in this league another season? Because the first year, phew, we've done, you know, job done. We've done that now. I think now it's about, okay, how do we now build on that? Can we now get a, you know, can we get, get another Ericsson type figure in another, can we go up a notch in terms of quality to make sure we're not just fighting relegation, we're kind of comfortably staying inside the Premier League next season? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point from Jordan in the sense that the, they had that buffer, so when when they did hit a bit of, bit of a rocky stage, behind the scenes they, they they were not not calm, but they were assured in the sense, okay, look, we, we can play at this level. We've got results. We've done well. So although they did hit that rocky stage, they still had that confidence and belief in their ideals and and their, and their style of play. And as you say, they've been able to ride that out, and they're playing very well now. And of course, as we know, the likes of Ericsson coming in has been transformative in the, in the sense that. He's just giving him that, that sprinkling of, of star quality. And when someone like that comes in uh, of that high quality, it just raises the level of, of everyone else. You know, we, look, we spoke about West Ham earlier, not bringing in any signings. Of course, they have a tight-knit squad, but it's bringing in someone of a higher level. It just it just galvanises the, the dressing room. And he came in just at that moment where their form was, was dipping slightly. And we've seen since then, there's always been a catalyst for and a springboard for a number of, of, of great performances. You know, Tony's back on form, the likes of Brian and Emberimo, the likes of Vitaly Janel, for example, all, all raised their game in the last few months, which has coincided with, with Ericsson's, Ericsson's return. Jordan made, made a good point about succession planning as well for next season. And they've tied down quite a lot of their, well, I think it's four or five players now to long-term deals now, uh, this season in January, a lot of key players. So they've got that core and that nucleus of that squad to go into next season. So it's really about how they build from there. And they don't want to good things because, you know, I went to school near Brentford. I mean, they were in League One. And, you know, it was real toil. You know, the games we used to watch were just really low quality. It was just, you know, quite barren. So to see them now, where they are, new stadium, with sprinklings of star quality, like to Ericsson and, and Tony, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And you can really see it's a club who have a great ethos from top down. And everyone's pulling in the right direction. So where if, if one if one cog of the machine was to go out, someone else can come in and and you you see what they you see, can see what they're trying to do. So they they've had a great season and um, yeah, I'm really intrigued to see how they get on next year. Yeah, it's a really innovative operation. You know, the, the brain training and things like that going on there, which is really interesting. And also, they play in the in the run in Leeds. Everton and Watford so they could be the influencers in who goes down Leeds if you look at it now Jordan uh, 10 points out of their last four games they won at Watford in a you know, pretty 
sort of nondescript scuffling sort of game. Again, I'll ask you the same question. They should be all right, shouldn't they? Yeah, I think they're fine as well. And a kind of repeat answer as well. I think for them now, it's about in this post-Bielsa era, how do they ensure that they can, you know, really support Jesse Marsh in terms of how he now wants to play football? Because I don't think his football is drastically different from Bielsa's, but it's it's subtle, it's subtly different to Bielsa's. And I think he may decide, I do want a big squad. You know, Bielsa was very, very vocal and very obvious about the fact that he didn't want a big squad. And I think it worked for him in, in, in you know, more often than not. But I think, you know, Jesse March might have a different approach. He might say, no, actually, I do want, I don't want to rely on 13 players. I want, I, I need 16 players, which I think would probably be smarter anyway. So it, I think under him, I'm keen to see how he gets on. I like him. There's something about him that I I, I do like. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of Leeds, but hey, hey. Um, <laughs> but I do like, I do like the manager. I do like the manager. And I think how they support him this summer, I'm, I'm keen to see how that, how that plays out. Mm. Yeah, Everton probably had the perfect opposition on Saturday, didn't they, um, Rich? Uh, again, mm-hmm. okay, there's a four-point gap now. It just gives them a little bit of breathing space, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. It was, it's quite interesting in the sense that I think a lot of the teams down there, well, look at Burnley, you know, Everton lost the game that they were probably supposed to win and won the game that they were probably, you know, scheduled to lose. And, and with Burnley, it was, it was vice versa. But yeah, that, that little buffer is, is key. Well, I'd obviously, you know, worry about Everton's away form because they just seem to be almost Jekyll and Hyde at home, galvanised by the home crowd. You know, they, they, they show that great determination, which you'd expect from an Everton and the Frank Lampard side. You bet. Away from home, they're just the complete opposite. So I just worry with their away games, can they get dragged in again? Hopefully not for, from their perspective. And I think it's just a case of them relying on their home form to see them through. But having that, that four-point buffer now is, is key at this stage of the season. Mm. What about Burnley? Was their fate sealed by that loss at Norwich, Jordan? That's a bad loss. That is a bad loss. And I, and I think whilst for Everton, them beating United obviously is huge for them. I think the defeat of Burnley yesterday is equally as big. I, I think that those two results may be enough now to keep Everton, or give them belief. I think Burnley, that's a that's a bad loss, man. I had Everton going down until, they, until that Burnley defeat. And I was like, oh, I mean, if you can't beat Norwich, that's that that says a lot. Yeah, they, they would. I think Sean Dyche would have quietly to himself had that down as a as a bank of three points, and it's not a lot of bank of three points if you're Burnley at the moment. <laughs> Let's have it right. Well, they've only won but four that, games all season, haven't they? Well, exactly. So I think he would have seen that as like, okay, we're, we're going to win that, and then we can you know chance our luck elsewhere. I'm just looking at their fixtures now. They've got you know Burnley away, Southampton at home, you know Watford away, Spurs away. Villa, Burnley got some, what I would say, on paper anyway, potentially tricky games there. So they needed to win that game. And I, I think I think they could be they could be going down now. Yeah, I, I agree. I tend to. Everyone inevitably had their eyes on the Etihad on Sunday. But it does seem that the relegation battle reached the crossroads at Carrow Road. Burnley, that performance basically challenged the assumption that somehow, as usual, the values inculcated by Sean Dyche would ensure survival. You know, he's still characteristically defiant, but, you know, you can't get away from the fact that Norwich might just have taken Burnley down with them and Watford, who, by the way, have lost their last nine home league games. It's tough at the top, 
but it's terrifying at the bottom. Uh, as all that plays out, I'd just like to thank Richard and Jordan for their insights and to thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.